Our scripture passage today comes uh, from the book of Nehemiah, and we are finishing up our uh, series called Forged in Faith about uh, the history of the people of Israel and how God had used and worked through their history to forge and to build the people of Israel into his people, the people of God. And uh, we're reading a story today about the restoration of the people of Israel being brought back into Jerusalem and the rebuilding of their city and their temple. Um, but I'm going to read this a little bit later. Um, we're going to go ahead and uh, just start uh, the sermon before that. But uh, before we do that, we're going to pause for a moment in prayer. Good and heavenly Father, Lord, you have given us every good gift and you have given us your word revealed to us in, uh, in the words of Scripture, Lord, and in the testimony of the Holy Spirit upon our hearts. And Father, as we come before your word today, we know we will not be able to fully understand it, Lord, to understand the message you have for us, unless that same spirit that inspired these words would also inspire us now. So Father, open our hearts and minds, Lord, fill it with that spirit, Lord, breathe your wisdom into us that we may hear, that we may read, and that we may understand. Lord, bless this holy reading of your holy word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Like many of you, um, when I was in college, I decided to take a class in human psychology. And I took this class with probably like a lot of many of you did with this hope that I would have this great understanding into the workings of the human mind and that it would just all enlighten me and it would be like, oh yes, yes. Now I see what makes us work. Well, I was generally disappointed Okay, Psych 101 did not reveal any marvelous secrets to the human mind. And honestly, I forgot about everything I studied in that class. But there were a few things that stuck in my mind. And one in particular, one of the study I read by a psychologist named Lawrence Kohlberg. And I read what he said. He wrote about, the, about human morality and the development of human morality. And something about it stuck in my mind, and I've remembered it to this day. And, and this is what basically Kohlberg said. What he did was he was studying uh, moral and ethical development and asking the questions, how do we determine right and wrong? Are there stages that we go through? And he actually observed that they are stages that human beings tend to go through in developing their moral and ethical sense. And they're fairly consistent and reliable. And, and the first stage he identified was called pre-conventional morality. And this is the moral stage of infants to young children. And this moral stage is, is a pain and pleasure based moral system. And what that means is to the child is what hurts is bad. And what feels good or brings pleasure is good. Good and evil, you know, bad and good is all determined by pain and pleasure. Pre-conventional morality. The second stage we enter into is called conventional morality. And, and in this stage, right and wrong is determined by our peer groups. It's by basically what everybody else is doing around us. What is right and what is wrong depends on what our friends, our, our, our nation, the people around us are doing. We kind of look around for cues. Is this the right thing to do? What are y'all doing? Are y'all do okay, okay, you will do this. This is right. And that other thing we didn't choose is wrong. That's called conventional morality. Finally, the third stage of moral development is called post-conventional morality. And in this stage, this final stage, 
The person is determined for him or herself what is right or wrong based on external principles. It kind of comes with some life and some experience and you think, you know what? A right or wrong has got to be something greater than my pain or pleasure. It's got to be greater than what everybody else is doing. There's got to be some universal system. And you kind of come to that determination yourself of what is right or wrong and then you apply it to your life. Post-conventional morality. Unfortunately, one thing uh, Kohlberg observed is not everybody reaches this third and final stage. In fact, by his estimate, only 10 to 15% of people reach the post-conventional morality stage. And that means 85% of us get stuck in the conventional morality phase where right or wrong is determined by what everybody else is doing around us. Pretty scary to think about that. That 85% of the people we live around and live with are determining right or wrong based on just what everybody else is doing. And I've noticed uh, faith gets developed in kind of the same way, in kind of these same stages. And that, that first development of faith, we tend to believe what our parents believe. That's our faith, what our parents believe. We trust them. They're the grown-ups. They know what's going on, right? They can't be wrong. Not our mom and dad. So we believe whatever they believe. And then as we get older, we reach this second stage of faith where we start to believe based on what everybody else is believing, basically our peer group. What do y'all believe about God? What do you say? Oh, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that too. And so our faith is based on what people around us are believing, what our culture believes, what our society believes. But then there's that third stage, that final stage of faith where we believe what we believe because we have tested it as true. Because we've had the experience of life and we've taken, the, maybe we've even tried out a few different faiths. Maybe we've really dug into the, the scriptures and to, into the heart and soul of what our faith believes and we've held it up against life and we've studied it and examined it and we've said, you know what, this is true. This is the faith that I'm going to believe. And that's when it becomes not just a faith, it becomes your faith. So this is what I'm going to found my life upon. This is what I'm going to base my life upon. I don't care what my parents believe. I don't care what my culture believes. This is what I have come to discover as true. Now, th this stage of faith and morality, you know, it can be the faith that everyone else does believe in. But that's not why you believe it. Everyone else around you might be Christians, your family might be Christians, but you come to believe in Christ. But it's a little different because you're not believing it because it was given to you. You believe it because you've discovered it as true. What that means is your heart truly and wholly now belongs to God. That's what it means to have this, what, what Paul calls the tested genuineness of your faith. Your heart truly and wholly belongs to God. That's a place where I believe God is leading us all. God doesn't want you to believe in him just because your parents believed in him. God doesn't want you to believe in him just because everybody else around you is believing in him. God wants you to believe in him because your heart is truly and wholly belonging to him. God wants your faith to be in a Christ that you have come to know as Lord. He wants your faith to be in Christ as one that you have come to know as Savior. 
And when you've known it as yours, that faith doesn't just become your father's faith or your mother's faith or your culture's faith or society's faith. It now is your faith. It's not an easy road to get to that place where your faith has been tested, your faith has been tried, it's, it's been through the fire and it's come out purified on the other side. Sometimes we go through a lot of doubt. Sometimes we go through a lot of struggle. Sometimes we actually wander away from the faith completely and try out some other faiths and test those and to see how they measure up to this, to this one faith that's proclaimed in scriptures. And hopefully what we do is we come back because it has been tested, has been tried, and has been found as true. And then we know it as my faith. When your heart truly and wholly belongs to God. Now this is a place Israel eventually arrived. But it was not an easy journey. And all summer we've been talking about how God has been working with his people and forging them. And it has been, oh man, such an up and down journey. But, but through it all, God has had his hand upon them and he's guided them. And, and at the very beginning, he was, he, was, he was guiding them so closely and intimately. We, we heard that when he began forging them, he took them as slaves, right? They were just the, the weakest people you could find on earth, a group of slaves. And he found them, and he delivered them by his hand, and he brought them to the Red Sea, and he parts the Red Sea by his hand, and he leads them to the wilderness. And, and all through that time, he's shepherding them, he's guiding them. He's there in the wilderness, and he's protecting them. He's raining manna and, and bringing them quail and water and protecting them from enemies. And, and it comes time, he brings them to the promised land, and, and he's knocking walls down, and he's knocking armies aside, and he's anointing them with victory, and, and, and they settle the land, and everywhere they go, they're being blessed. And God's just, he's given them prosperity. He's given them blessing. He raises kings and he, and he protects them from all sorts of enemies. He's, he's got a shield around them. And all this time, they're, they're, they're doing the exact thing they shouldn't be doing. All this time, God has his hand on them and he's, and he's leading them like a shepherd. He's being gentle with them and he's, he's holding enemies at bay and he's blessing them with incredible prosperity. And the whole time he's doing that, they're going after other gods. They're believing in any God and worshiping any God except the one that was doing everything for them. And God he sees it happening so much and he, and he realizes that he finally has to just let them, just let them be, be at the mercy of those gods. He said, you want those gods so much. You love those gods so much and you don't love me. Here I am, your husband, the one that's cared for you and loved you, and yet you've been unfaithful. You know what? I'm going to let you have your way. So he lifts his hand of protection and he calls Syria. He calls Babylon. And they come and they invade Israel. They destroy the nation. They wipe out the temple. They tear the walls of Jerusalem down and they carry the people into exile in another country where they have to serve other gods, where they cannot worship their God, where the temple is no longer there, where the presence of God is no longer there right there beside them. Something happens to them in Babylon. It opens their eyes and they were like, what have we done? What have we done? I mean, think back what we had. He was with us the whole time. And we had the freedom to go into his temple and his, and his spirit was with us every time we went in there. And he loved us and he cared for us and we just threw it away. 
And we went after these other gods, these Baals and these Asherahs and these Molochs. And, and here they are, they're in Babylon where they're surrounded by these idols that they worshiped, that they went after with such heart. And they were like, what is this? What have we done? We gave up the best thing we had in life. There it was. When, when they had him, when he was with them, they didn't appreciate him at all. It took exile, it took destruction, it took being cast in a foreign land among foreign gods for them to realize what it is that they had. It's funny how people work, isn't it? That's another thing you learn from psychology, but you don't have to take Psych 101 to learn that, to learn this lesson of you don't know what you got until it's gone. Sometimes it takes losing losing something precious to us, losing something dear to us that we realize what an incredible gift it was. And for the Israelites, it took losing that source of joy, losing that source of prosperity, losing that source of blessing that they realized what it was they had and what a gift it was to be known by God and to know Him as well. And it took this losing it took this moment of losing for them to be in a place where they were finally ready to give God wholly and truly their heart and to give it for no, no one else. If we turn to the books of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, those are the last of the, uh, the Israel, Israelite histories that we have in the Bible. Because uh, after that, the narrative story ends with the Israelite people and we start to have the, the story of Christ and the advent of Christ coming into the world. And, and we see here, it's almost like the, the Israelites had to get to this place where they had their hearts truly and fully belonging to God that they could finally be in a place where they could receive their Messiah. And not all of them received them, but many did. And we see the story of restoration of them being brought back from Babylon and back to Jerusalem in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And the, and the return to Jerusalem took place in two phases. And the first one was with the emperor Cyrus. And Cyrus brought the priest Ezra and he, said, and he instructed him to go back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Now, for Cyrus, he wasn't being a pious man, okay? For him, he was ruling over this vast empire that worshiped lots of different gods. And he heard about this temple that was supposed to be worshiping the God of heaven and earth. And he was worried, well, if there's a temple of this God, we should be worshiping him because that's what local people do. They worship their local God. And he thought to maintain the empire like it should, all the local gods should be worshiped. Well, we're going to pray to all of them and hope that one of those prayers reaches the right ears. But what God was doing with Cyrus was his Holy Spirit was moving him to restore his people Israel back to the land where they belonged. And so Ezra is called to go rebuild the temple. And later Nehemiah is called to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. And they go through a lot of trials. Read through Ezra and Nehemiah. It's actually a pretty interesting story. They go through a lot of trials, a lot of dangers, a lot of hardships. But they finally get the walls rebuilt and they finally get the temple rebuilt. And it has been over 70 years since they've been able to worship their God in their temple. 70 years. Whole generations have come and gone without being able to be back in their home temple, worshiping their God as they should. Imagine if someone came, destroyed this church, took us into exile, and we had to wait years and years and years. And then finally we're allowed to come home and rebuild the church again and worship like God intended us to. I mean, it was a huge celebration. 
they go and they pull the book of the law out and they read the book of the law again and the people are just so happy to be back in their temple and they know, they realize for the first time this precious gift that God has given them. Now, I want us to look at Nehemiah here in this scripture passage. It's in your bulletin here. This is from Nehemiah 8. I pulled from a few different places. Uh, but this is what it was like when they finally got their temple rebuilt and they got to worship God again. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. <laughs> exactly. That's one of the first Amens I've gotten here. That's, I like it. I like it. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. took them a long time to get to this place. It took them a long time to get to this place, but this is who God had been forging them into from the very beginning. God was forging them into a people who owned their faith, who didn't just have it, who weren't just given their faith. It wasn't just the faith of their nation. Now they owned it. Now they knew it as true. Now they accepted it. Now they believed it. After losing everything in exile, after their homes being destroyed, after their temple being torn down, after their own freedom being taken away from them, they finally, finally understood what it is they had. They finally understood the blessing of knowing and living in the presence of God. They looked back and they saw that all along the one God the ruler of heaven and earth, the eternal God, that was their God, and they were his chosen people. What an amazing thing it was to be his chosen people. The, the Israelites that returned from exile were not the same ones that went into exile. 
The Israelites that went into the promised land that day were not even the same ones that went into the promised land to conquer when they were led by Joshua. Those were people that would be deceived by other gods, that would be deceived by other fates, that would be chased by false promises of the world and the people around them. These people that turned back were people who would give their lives for their faith. These people that came back understood that faith was life. These were people who understood the gift of knowing God and being known by Him. These were people whose hearts had been purified. And they wholly and truly belonged to God. And when their hearts belonged to Him, it said their hearts were filled with joy. Just look through this passage all over this. There's, there's joy all around. People are rejoicing. The men are rejoicing. The women are rejoicing. And I love that last passage there. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. They were so happy. There was so much rejoicing. People from far away. Hey, what's that sound? Oh, that's Jerusalem. Jerusalem's full of joy again. Jerusalem has found their joy because their hearts now belong to God. Found their joy because they had found their faith. Can you say the same of your faith? Can you say that your faith is truly your own? Can you say that your heart truly and wholly belongs to God and belongs to no other? If your family decided to wake up one day and say they're going pagan, would you go pagan too? If the next president we elect just dazzles the people so much that the whole, as America as a whole, decides to worship our president as a god, would you follow suit? Or would you be able to hold fast to your faith? If they began to persecute you if you didn't worship these idols, would you be able to hold fast? If they threatened you with death, if they killed your families, if they seized your property, if they threw you in prison, if they threatened you with death itself, would you be able to hold fast to your faith? Can you say you truly and wholly believe because you know God is true or is it because you were raised to believe that way? Or because we live in the Bible Belt? And here in the South, people believe in God and believe in Jesus. Don't get me wrong. It's important to be raised in the faith. It's important to raise your children in the faith. In fact, the greatest gift you can give your children is to raise them in the faith. You raise them in the faith of Jesus Christ, you give them roots that help them build and grow for the rest of their life. But at some point, at some point, this faith has to become their own. At some point, it's got to be tested as genuine. At some point, your kids have got to know their faith is true, not because you told them, but because they have found it out for themselves. Now, when our kids are kids, when they're young children, we can actually believe for them. We actually can. They're actually under the umbrella of our faith. That's why we can baptize infants. Right? But that's not true as adults. Your parents can't believe for you. You cannot believe for your kids. You've got to be able to stand on your own two feet and know God as God. You've got to be able to stand on your own heart knowing your Christ as your Savior and your Lord, not anybody else's. Your heart has to belong fully and wholly to Him. And once it is yours, genuinely yours, 
Even it's the same faith that we share. Even it's the same faith that everyone in this church shares and your family shares. The whole world can share it. But once you have come to know it as yours, it is genuinely yours. And knowing and nothing can take it away from you. It's when your heart wholly and fully belongs to God. Now, if you stick with this journey of faith long enough, you're going to realize it goes through some rough patches. I'm not talking about rough patches of life. I'm talking about rough patches of faith. Sometimes life can be going great and our faith isn't going so hot. Sometimes life can be miserable and our faith is strong. Faith has its trials and ups and downs just like life does. There's times where God upholds us and He's near us. He's so close, we feel like He's right beside us and we can just reach out and touch Him. And there's times where God feels kind of distant. In fact, He feels so distant, we wonder if He really does exist. There's times that God is leading us by a mighty hand, like through the waters of the Red Sea. There's times that God's forcing us into a long and arduous wilderness. There's times where God is filling our life with glory and crowning us as kings. And there's times where he's casting us into exile. But through it all, he's leading us to a place called restoration. Through it all, our Lord is leading us to a day when he can call us into his house. And we will follow, we will go into his house, not because we're following everybody else there, because we're following our heart. And we can follow our heart then because our heart truly and wholly belongs to God. We can follow our heart then because it fully leans upon God. It fully trusts God. It fully loves God with all of our heart, our mind, and our soul. We realize this is where God has been leading us all along. He's been purifying our heart so we can follow it. And when our heart is truly and wholly His... He will fill it with the joy that the whole world can hear. To God be all the glory forever and ever. Amen.